There's a quote I, I've seen online. I've probably seen it on t-shirts too. It says, Dear Santa, I was good at being naughty. Does that count? It's an interesting loophole to think through. That's, that's kind of how we usually, that's what we're usually looking for when we ask a question like, does it count? We're, we're looking to see if something we've done is enough to meet the requirements, even though it's not really how you'd normally take those requirements. So, so when students are given instructions for an assignment, for example, and there are often some who really don't want to do what the teacher's asking. And so they might ask, well, does it still count if I just show my answers to the math problems and not show my work? Or, or is it okay if I, if I just put the information on a piece of paper instead of a poster bar, board for my project? It's just eight and a half by 11. Is that okay? Is it okay if I just skim the book? Is that, is that going to count for reading it? So most of the cases, you know, the person's trying to get away with something, not doing what's fully required. But, you know, there's, there's times that we really want to know what counts and what doesn't count. So we're asking legitimate questions like what counts for a touchdown, a goal, a, a three-pointer, those kinds of questions. Or what counts as an approved document to get your passport or your new license? What, what counts as on time if you're mailing a bill? What are they going to consider as on time? Now, there are requirements for those things, and there's somebody who determines if it counts or if it doesn't count, whether it's Santa or your teacher or whether it's some official or a referee. Somebody says which one meets the requirements, which doesn't meet the requirements. Now, the question is what's going to count in the end? There are requirements. For those of us who, who know that we're going to face God someday, we know who's the one who determines who meets those requirements and who doesn't? No, we're going to have to face God. He's the one who determines that. So what Paul's been teaching in Romans is that there's really two ways to think about God's requirements. On the one hand, God's requirement is perfect obedience. It involves perfectly reflecting his holiness. A person who perfectly obeyed God would be righteous. It's just Paul says nobody does that. He says in Romans 3, 10 and 12, is none is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the only option for us is to be counted righteous by faith in Jesus. So Jesus gave his life as a ransom payment, Paul says, to free us, to release us from the power of sin. He describes the, Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice that made atonement for us. So God was rightly angry with our sin. He had every right to punish us with an eternal punishment. And yet he sent his son to pay that punishment for us. So Jesus' death on the cross, it's a punishment. Jesus endured for sin. He paid it for everyone who believes. That's how sacrifices work. We understand what sacrifices we're pointing to. A sacrifice involved... The righteous status of the sacrifice being transferred to the sinner and the sins of the sinner being transferred to the sacrifice. So that's how, so what God's saying here is that that's how he was righteous in how he dealt with people under the old covenant because all those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. And he's also, this also demonstrates how God is righteous 
to declare us righteous, how he's just when it comes to our sin. Our sin is paid. It's dealt with. But there is a real, genuine, righteous life that he counts as having righteous status. So last week we saw that if this is how it works, then there's nothing to boast about for those people who are relying completely on Jesus. There's nothing you can boast about. You're relying on Jesus completely for your status of righteousness. There's, there's nothing that distinguishes us as better than anyone else. God gives us this righteous status that we don't deserve simply to those who believe, who trust in Jesus. Now, a Jewish person in Paul's day, they're following along with this. Again, they might say, yeah, right. You know, says you, Paul. We, we know what our scriptures say, and our scriptures tell us something different. And so if, if you imagine a student asking another student if what they did met the requirements for the teacher, you know, that student can just disregard what their fellow student, student said if, if they didn't like what it sounded like because it's not coming directly from the teacher. In the same way, the, these Jewish people in Paul's day, they're not going to listen to Paul unless they hear directly from God's word that this is the way it is. So that's what Paul's doing. Paul, as he writes to believers in Rome, he's taken into consideration what, what would it take for those that have, ex, have received God's Old Testament revelation. How would I address their objections to what I've been teaching? And what he does here in chapter 4 is he gives a test case from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, to prove what he's been teaching. Now, he's given evidence throughout from the Old Testament to prove what he's been saying. But this test case that he gives, it's especially persuasive because he uses Abraham. He's using Abraham to to test whether or not his understanding of how a person receives this righteous status, whether or not that's consistent with what the Old Testament, the Bible, has to say. And I think it's a brilliant move. It's a brilliant move because Doug Moo, he explains two reasons why it's, it's good for him to choose Abraham. On the one hand, Jewish people held Abraham in very high esteem. He is the, the forefather, Paul says, according to the flesh. He is the progenitor of their nation. On top of that, people believed that Abraham was an exemplary person. He was an example of someone who had been accepted by God for his obedience. That's what they believed. The apocryphal book written in between the writing of the Old Testament and the New, the prayer of Manasseh, it says that Abraham did not sin against God. Jewish person writing that said that was the case. Another book written at that time, Jubilees, it calls Abraham perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So what better test for, or test case for what Paul's been preaching than to take the very person that the Jewish person would say, this is the, the example of works-based salvation. And to use that to prove justification by faith alone. So Paul's taking the Jewish exemplar of working for your salvation as his own example of being justified by faith alone. But Moon points out a second reason why you would choose Abraham. If you follow the storyline of the Bible, there are some key turning points. You know, we start at the very beginning. God created the world. Right after that, you have the fall. And then you have this buildup of the depraved humans that just continually do more and more evil, and eventually God has to address it, and that's what the flood 
takes place. That's when the flood takes place. But the flood doesn't address people's sin. It addresses it in the sense of punishing it, but it doesn't deal with the sin problem. And so what happens is Abraham is really the first step toward God establishing a, a new creation. It's not the complete point at which he does that, but it's the first step toward that, where God is going to create image bearers who do want to obey, who do want to listen to him, who do what he intended from the beginning. So what better person to use as a test case than the first person as God, at that turning point in God's plans? The person, when God turns to, again, eventually create a people for himself who are eager to do what's good. Abraham is a key turning point in God's plan. So Paul's going to use Abraham to prove what's really going to count in the end. When it comes to justification, when it comes to those whom God declares to be righteous, what counts? That's what Paul's addressing in chapter 4, which you can turn again to Romans chapter 4, if you haven't done so already. Page 885. When it comes to those who, whom God declares to be righteous, what counts? Is it works that count? Or is it faith alone? So who really is justified by God or before God? What is the righteousness that counts? And Paul's going to answer that question really in three parts. And he's using Abraham again as his test case to answer that. So if he's going to answer to whom God considers as righteous in the end, one, it's those who believe. Two, it's the undeserving. And then three, it's both Jewish and Gentiles. And again, those answers flow out of what we see in Abraham. That's what he's going to show. Now, I can imagine some here might say, you know, Kurt, we've heard this already. And we know this. We, we already understand. So why do we need to listen to this over and over again? And on the one hand, I, I'm really glad that there are people who get it. That, that there are people in this room who really get it. Really understand what this is all about. So for you who get it, understand why we go over this over and over again. On the one hand, one of the things it does is it prepares us to share this good news with other people. When you are, are thoroughly immersed in the truth of the gospel, when you understand it really well because you've heard it over and over again, you're more equipped to share it with others. At the same time, you're more equipped to handle people that come to you and tell you something different than what the true gospel is. But, but there's another important reason why you need to hear this over and over again, why I need to hear this over and over again. It's because what Paul says here is what makes our salvation truly amazing. It's amazing. It is not at all what we would expect to be the case. And when you realize just how amazing this is, it, it encourages you in your love for God. And in your admiration for God, that spills over into your praise for God. This deepens our understanding of what God's done for us. So hearing this truth should not be boring to those who embrace it. It should be anything but boring. And this is utterly, confoundingly amazing beyond anything you can hope for. And to hear it over and over again... It just encourages our worship and praise and love. So it's a joy 
to hear what Paul says for those who've embraced it. Now, at the same time, it is surprising the number of people who are church-going, they go to church, who would think that they understand this but don't. I mean, they, they would nod and, and say, yeah, 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 every, every time they hear the truth. But if you stop and ask them what they thought, they don't say this. So it is good for us to continue to preach this and teach this and hear this so that we listen. And we ask ourselves, is this really the way that I think of my salvation? It is the only way to understand God's salvation. Is that true of us? So what kind of person does God consider to have a righteous status? Paul's first answer really is, again, by, by review, by way of review. But it's also by using Abraham now as his test case. And his answer is those who believe. God considers those who believe in Jesus to be righteous. And he sets up the test case there in verse 1. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? When you notice the word then, you notice it's pointing back then to what he said in the previous sections. And you understand the gist of his question is this. When we look at the Bible at Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish people, what did he find to be true about righteousness? What was Abraham's experience when it came to acceptance by God? Paul quickly tells us what's at stake with this test case. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Remember his argument last week. His argument was justification by faith excludes boasting. But if somebody did achieve this righteous status by their own effort, they'd have something to boast about. They could actually say, I did it. People should praise me because I accomplished something that not everybody does. And notice Paul's immediate response. He, he follows very quickly with, but not before God. And you can see from verse 3, he, he starts verse 3 with the word for. He's addressing this idea. On the one hand, he's answering the question in verse 1 when he lists out verse 3, but he's also pointing to the fact that he's, he's already told us the conclusion from the start. Now he's going to explain why. Boasting's excluded. You, you, you cannot boast before your creator. No one boasts. No creature can boast before their creator. So he excludes, he gives the answer from the start, and then he explains. What's the biblical evidence? It says in verse 3, by way of answer, he quotes Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a, it's a critical point in the account of God's interactions with Abraham. So just looking back on what's happened. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God had called Abraham out of this, this land of, in Mesopotamia, out of his homeland, to go to a land where he hadn't heard of. And, and again, if you're following the story in Genesis, you realize that at this point his name's Abram, but like Like Paul does, we're just going to keep calling him Abraham. That's the name that we know him better by. So Abraham leaves his homeland in light of God's promised blessing. But when he gets to the promised land, there's a famine. So the response we see in Genesis 12 is not the response of faith. From the very beginning of, of the account that starts in verse 10, Abraham's acting on the basis of his own wisdom, not on the basis of faith. So he gets there, and in order to avoid the famine, he says, I'm going to go to Egypt. 
And as he's entering into Egypt, you remember how he threw his wife under the bus. He, he didn't want to stick his neck out. He understood the way that the world works. He understood that in the wild west of Egypt, a guy with a beautiful wife doesn't last long. They get whacked. And then that beautiful wife ends up in the hands of somebody in power. And so he tells his wife, you just say that you're my sister. And what happens immediately, Pharaoh takes, him, takes her into his harem. So even though Abraham's not going to stick his neck out for his wife, the Lord protects her. He sends plagues on the Pharaoh, and somehow Pharaoh puts two and two together, and he calls Abraham into his office. And the question he asks Abraham is nearly identical to the question that God asked Eve at the fall. He's saying, what have you done? You're guilty. Not you're righteous, Abraham. A pagan king is telling Abraham, he's guilty. What have you done? You've sinned. So then the story continues, and Abraham separates from his nephew Lot, and he receives reassuring promises from God that, that his descendants would be countless and that they would, they would receive this land. And then right after that, there's a coalition of Mesopotamian kings that bring their forces into the valley, and they, they attack these different towns. Well, the town where Lot had gone was attacked, and Lot gets taken off among the other captives. So what does Abraham do? He goes and chases after them. He rescues Lot along with the others. And the, the king of Sodom, he wants to reward him, and Abraham says, no, he's not going to accept that reward. His reward's going to come from God. But then he also tithes to the Lord through that priest who's there, Melchizedek. He's saying, I, I understand why I was successful. I'm going to give this tithe to demonstrate. I understand. I was successful because of the Lord. And then it's at this point that Abraham gets a vision from the Lord. And in the vision, God tells Abraham, I am your shield. And your reward is going to be very great. How, how perfectly fitting is that? I mean, Abraham can understand how he was successful. The Lord has been his shield. And then this promise about a reward. He had refused the reward from the king of Sodom. And God's saying, you're going to get a reward. But then Abraham has a problem. I mean, he's been promised that God said he was going to become a great nation. He was going to be, uh, he, God was going to make a great nation of him and that he would have these countless descendants, but he doesn't have a child at this point. And so he, he's asking God essentially, what's the point? I can't pass any of this on. I'm, I'm childless. And the Lord then reinfor- reinforces again his promise to him. Your descendants are going to be as, numer- as numerous, as countless as the stars. And then comes our verse in Romans 4.3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now in Paul's day, and, and really in the years leading up to the time of Jesus and Paul, There were a number of Jewish people who interpreted this statement in light of other things that happened later to Abraham. Other instances of where Abraham obeyed, such as the example of the Lord testing Abraham when he told him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. In fact, the apocryphal work of the first book of Maccabees, it writes, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Second part of the text is identical to the Greek version of Genesis 15, 6 and to what Paul says here in Romans. I mean, talk about a revision. Genesis doesn't say that. And other Jewish authors 
weren't alone in taking what happened to Abraham in Genesis 22 and combining it with what God does here in chapter 15. But truth is, those are many, many years apart. One happens before the other. Up to this point in the story, what I just shared with you, Abraham has not demonstrated amazing faithfulness. He's not all bad, but he is definitely not all good. He is not sinless. He is not perfect. And what does Genesis actually say? It says that God considered Abraham to have a righteous status when he believed, not when he obeyed, not when he was found faithful. That's not what Genesis says. And the Hebrew text, at this point in Genesis 15, it actually pauses that some, something climactic has occurred in Genesis 15:6. That the writer in Hebrew says, hold on, just you need to make sure and get this. Now, up to that point, Abraham had done some good things. And he had left his home and come to a land he did not know. And Hebrews 11:8 points out that was an act of faith. But there is, there's something culminating about this point. Decisive about this point in Abraham's journey of faith. He hears God's promise at a moment of doubt. Somehow, miraculously, he believes God. Genuinely, truly believes God. So again, this is a a crucial point in God's plans. And at this crucial point, this turning point in God's plans, this is when it's clear that a person is considered righteous by God by putting their trust in God's promised blessing. Not because they obeyed. So the Jewish exemplar of being accepted by God for their works is really the perfect example of the person who is accepted by God by faith, not by works. So the kind of person God considers to have a righteous status is the one who believes, just like Abraham. But Paul goes further. He he has another aspect to whom God justifies. And again, it flows out of Abraham's life. The second way to answer the question to whom God considers to have righteous status is the undeserving. For those who do not deserve to be considered righteous, but believe that person is the one who is considered by God to be righteous. So Paul begins by contrasting in verse 4 our situation, the situation of salvation, and the situation of employment. You know, when you have a job, you deserve to be paid for it. Your company usually has a contract. They say, we're going to pay you this amount for this work. So if you do the work and they don't pay you, you can sue them. They have an obligation. They have to pay you. They've agreed to pay you. You've done the work. You deserve. You earned that wage. So they're not a gift. When you get your paycheck, it's not a gift. (laughs) Your paycheck is earned. That's not what's happening in justification. We have not done something that obligates God to declare us righteous. Paul explains in verse 5, the contrast isn't just between the person who works and the person who believes. He goes even beyond that. He says the one who does not work and believes. So he's saying the person doesn't work and receives righteousness. So their faith is not a work. It's something different. Abraham was counted as having this righteous status when he believed, not when he had done something righteous. He hadn't done a righteous act. And that's, again, that's not what faith is. Faith is not a righteous act. He was credited with having righteousness that 
was not his. Status was not deserved. It's through faith that God credits us with righteousness. But our faith is not righteousness itself. And that could be confusing. So our faith is not this righteous act that God then responds and says, you did it. You did something righteous by believing in me. So now I can declare you righteous. That's not how it works. Righteousness is not a righteous act that God's saying, oh, you are righteous. Or faith is not an act. Faith is the means by which God connects us to a righteousness we don't deserve, a righteous status we don't deserve, not our own righteousness. Now, the ESV translates this phrase here in verse 4 as a gift. More literally, it's according to grace. And the contrast there is with works that deserve to be paid a wage and grace. So when you're given something on the basis of grace, it's not deserved. So Paul's saying, Abraham wasn't counted righteous because he did something that deserved that righteous status, like somebody deserves to be paid a wage. It was according to grace. It was undeserved. Now, what is the status we actually deserve? We don't deserve the status of righteous. What status do we deserve? Well, that's it's really expressed in verse 5. God is the one who justifies not the righteous. He justifies the ungodly. That's our actual status. That's what we deserve to be regarded as. And, and what, what Paul says there, that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. That's shocking. You're reading the Bible and you come across that. It sounds like it's contradicting what God has said us elsewhere. So in Proverbs 17, 15, God says that a person who justifies the wicked is an abomination to him. He says in Exodus 30 or 23, 7, what's essentially the opposite in Hebrew of what Paul says here in Greek. You could translate it, God saying, I will not justify the ungodly. So what's going on here? Is this a contradiction? Really, this is the fundamental mystery of God's character. Later on in Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses. And in chapter 34, he he says this about himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Wait a minute. So how can you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but not clear the guilty? That doesn't seem to work. And yet God, by virtue of his righteous and loving character, he does it. How does he do both? The cross. That's what Paul's already explained. In Jesus, the guilty are not spared. Their guilt is atoned for. Their punishment is paid. So that sinners can be right, righteously forgiven. So it is wrong for a judge, it's absolutely wrong for a judge to say that something wrong that somebody did is is right, or to say that somebody who's right is really wrong. That's perverting justice. And a judge does that not because they care about the people that were harmed by somebody's crime. They don't love those people. They're doing something for the criminal because it benefits them in some way. They're perverting justice in that sense. So... Who's the chief victim in our sin? It's God. That's the person that we have 
done a crime against primarily. That's why David says in Psalm 51, after his sin with, against Uriah and with Bathsheba, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. So God is not perverting justice by forgiving sinners. This is really talking about two different things. There where he says, I'm not an unjust judge. I will not, I will not justify the ungodly. That's what he's meaning. I'm not unjust. I'm a righteous judge. And he's telling other humans, you need to be righteous judges. But he's a forgiving God also. And so he meets the righteous demand of our sin through his son's sacrifice. And then by virtue of Christ's real, genuine, righteous status, he declares the ungodly to be righteous by means of faith in Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. So for those who believe, this is what's happened. Christ experiences the consequences for our sin. The consequences are done. They're accomplished. And we experience the consequences of his righteous life. And that's how God is both just in condemning sin. He's addressing sin truly and really and declaring a truly righteous status. It's given to us from someone else. Now the question is, in all this, you know, Paul's talking about how God justifies the ungodly. Should we really say that of Abraham? I mean, the Jewish people in Paul's day were saying quite the opposite. You know, how can Paul really be saying here what he seems to be saying is that this includes Abraham. He's ungodly. Well, the Jewish people in Paul's day had completely forgotten the first part of the story. I mean, we'll go to the very beginning of the story in chapter 11, where we start with an idol-worshiping family. That's, That's Abraham's family. They're from where the Tower of Babel was built. The last experience of God's judgment. They're from Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans. That's where Babel was. And not only that, but Ur of the Chaldeans, that's known for the worship of the moon. Well, maybe, maybe Abraham's family was the exception. Well, except for the fact that Terah, his father, his name, was a name for the moon. Milka, his relative, her name was the name of the moon god's daughter. Even Sarah, with her original name, Sarai, is actually a title given to the moon god's wife. These, this family is ensconced in idolatry. And, and that's why Joshua, in chapter 24, says that Abraham's family served other gods in Mesopotamia. So yeah, Abraham's ungodly. He's not chosen because he's righteous. Then Paul has a second example in verse 6 to help us understand the other side of, of justification. He says that David talks about this. He talks about the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32. Now, this, this idea of blessing here, it has to do with the life of somebody who's experiencing God's favor. The, the blessed person's circumstances are highly favorable. People would want to be in this situation. And Jesus went on to explain this kind of blessed life in Matthew 5. He, he explained that the person who's truly blessed is the one who will experience the kingdom of God. So David says in Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are Covered. So God's favor here is seen 
in him forgiving lawless deeds and covering sins. I mean, quite apart from, or quite opposite from deeds that obey the law are lawless deeds. And yet they're not considered in this person's status. And then the, the same terminology found in, in Genesis 15, 6 and in Romans chapters 3 and 4, this recounting or this reckoning or counting, it's found in the second verse of Psalms 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin or will not count his sin. So this is the other side of what Paul's been talking about. The other side of being considered righteous by God. Not only are you considered to have this status, doesn't really belong to you, but you're not, your sin is not considered as playing a part in your status. What, what should require you to have the status of sinner or ungodly, it's not considered by God. It's not counted against you. And what's counted for you, this righteousness that's not deserved. Abraham was ungodly like the rest of us. But in his justification by faith, his sin did not count against him. And what we learned from Romans 3.25 is that it was Jesus' righteousness that actually counted for him. So what he had done was not considered when it, come to, when it came to his status. What he had not done was considered. What Jesus had done, that is what God considered in giving him the status of righteousness. What he did would have rendered him a sinner, ungodly. By faith, he's relying completely on God for this status of righteous. So what kind of person does God consider to have a righteous status? Those who believe in Jesus and who don't deserve that status of righteous. And then there's one more aspect that Paul wants to stress when it comes to who God or whom God considers to be righteous. And that's both Jewish people and Gentiles. God considers those who do not deserve it, but believe in Jesus to be righteous. And that includes every person who believes, both Jewish people and Gentiles. And understand, Paul is still getting this from Abraham's example. So, as he asks this question in verse 9, he's asking about this blessing, this experience of God's favor, this being counted as righteous. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. Abraham's example. That's what he goes on to say. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And that begs the question. You know, does, does a person, if they want to be like Abraham, do they also need to be circumcised like Abraham? You have to wonder, did Paul just shoot himself in the foot by using Abraham as an example? Because not only did Abraham believe, but he was also circumcised. Well, look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? He answers his own question. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. This is a very simple thing to check in the Bible. Which came first? God gave Abraham the right of circumcision, Paul says, as a sign of his covenant with him. That's the way that it's talked about in in Genesis 17. It pointed to this agreement that was being made. It was meant to be a reminder of Abraham's commitment and God's commitment to him. So in chapter 15, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. But the benefits of this arrangement 
were only going to be experienced by those who were included in the covenant. And so Abraham's required in chapter 17 to mark off the members, quite literally mark off, the members of this covenant by circumcising them. What Paul's pointing out is that God declared Abraham to be righteous by means of faith in chapter 15, many, many years before chapter 17, when circumcision was instituted. So circumcision wasn't required for God to declare Abraham to be righteous. came well after that. So that's why Paul calls this a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. Just like uh, an official would have a seal on their ring that they would use to signify something was authentic. What he's saying is that circumcision simply confirmed what was already true. It wasn't making it true. It was just confirming that. Abraham had been accepted by God by faith. Circumcision was given to point back and say, that's true. It's just authenticating what had already been true. It didn't make him any more accepted. It didn't actually have to do with his acceptance. So Abraham, again, stands at this crucial turning point in what God's doing. God is beginning, at least in the very, very least, to teach about how he's marking off this new creation. But he begins with Abraham and does that very thing, marking off someone who's going to be considered righteous and who will then begin to obey. And so, I mean, this is the point that God does begin this this route with his plans. It's not a change in his plans, but it's a turning point with it. So when God begins this part of the plan, he doesn't look around for somebody who's righteous. He looks at Abraham, this ungodly pagan. And then he gives Abraham this good news, a promised blessing. And Abraham is surprisingly convinced that this is true and worthwhile to the point that he'd he'd be willing to leave his homeland and be willing to continue to pursue God even when he's childless. So even though he's a pagan, he's ungodly, he relies on God. And that's when God declares him to be righteous by means of his faith. So God's going to go on to explain this blessing. He's going to explain what's going on. He's going to actually do that through these, the people that are going to experience a covenant with God who descend from Abraham. There's going to be this whole revelation that takes place through that people that are marked off by circumcision. In fact, circumcision itself is part of a, it's a teaching tool to point forward to the reality when Christ comes. So even circumcision is not given as a means of acceptance by God when it comes to his new creation. So God does this in a very ordered way. He could have marked Abraham off as circumcised, and then after that, Abraham believes, right? But that's not the order. Abraham believes when he's uncircumcised. And then he gives that sign. Abraham is just a member of the nations when God gives him this good news. But he becomes the father of a nation. So that's what we're dealing with. People that are among the nations, the uncircumcised, and the people that are part of this nation, chosen by God, the circumcised. 
And Abraham has this unique privilege of being the father of both in a way. He doesn't take away from the fact that he is the father, the forefather of the old covenant people according to the flesh. That's mentioned in verse 1. What's mentioned here is that he's the father of those who believe. He's a father in a different sense. And in that sense, he's only father to those who believe. He's the father of all who believe without being circumcised and the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith, the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's making this clarification. He's saying he's the father of those who are not circumcised and believe, but he's also the father of those who are circumcised But not just that, they also follow in the footsteps of their their father Abraham by believing. They're justified in the same sense. So, on the one hand, you have fatherhood that's physical. It's just a natural reality. You're the father of your children. There's also a a way that the Bible talks, talks about people being the father of other people that didn't descend from them. That's what we see even back as far as Genesis 4. In verses 20 and 21, Jabal was the father of nomadic shepherds. And Jubal, his brother, was the father of musicians. He's not saying that every musician descended physically from Jubal. And every nomadic herder descended physically from Jabal. He's talking about fatherhood in another, in another sense. You know, this, this is the fatherhood of pioneers. You do a craft for the first time. You do something for the first time. You become a, fi- a pioneer, a father of whatever that is. So God, he begins this process of calling people out of this ungodly mass of people. And Abraham's the pioneer. He's the father. And that's not to say God wasn't at work in in the lives of Adam and Enoch and Noah, but this is the beginning of something new. A new humanity, as it were. This is a new stage in God's plans. That's what makes Abraham the father, the pioneer. Not just of Jewish people who believe, but also Gentiles who follow in his footsteps of faith. And that's the only path to righteousness. It's only by grace alone, through faith alone. So, when you think about this, uh, how, to, how to get at what people believe. You know, one of the things I've mentioned before is that I have questions that I learned from evangelism explosion. And I asked people, try to figure out, what, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about salvation? Well, Tim Keller has a, he kind of tweaked those questions a little bit. He asks, assuming for the moment that there really is a heaven, what do you think are the general requirements for admission? Who gets in and who doesn't? And then he went on to say, any, anyone who asks these questions to a random sampling of church-going people will be surprised at the large number of people who say one of the following. I'll get in. I'll get to heaven because, A, because I have tried to, my best to be a good Christian. B, because I believe in God and, and try to do his will. Or C, because I believe, I believe in God with all my heart. He says, it's not a trick question. He writes, it reveals common misconceptions about what it means to believe, to have faith. Answer A, because I have tried my best to be a good Christian, is a salvation by works answer. Very thing Paul's arguing against, saying that does not save. 
But answer B, because I believe in God and try to do his will, is a salvation by faith plus works. Paul says in Galatians, that is no gospel. That's no good news. Answer C, because I believe in God with all my heart, is actually a salvation by faith as a work. You're not viewing faith correctly. Each each case, you have this religious person. He says, the person is religious, but is not someone who does not work. Remember the difference. It's not between those who work and those who work and believe. It's between those who work and those who don't work, but believe. In each of these cases, somebody is still working in order to try to be accepted by God. In the last case, he says, the person has even come to trust in his or her trust. They actually are are trusting in their faith. So maybe you really do know better, and when you're asked that question, you get tripped up. That does happen. When you're not ready for it, that happens. But understand how important this is. Understand how important answering those questions are. There is one way to be accepted by God. It has nothing to do with what you've done. If you are in any way relying on what you've done to be accepted by God, it's the wrong answer, no matter if you include faith in that or not. So, You are not accepted by God because you're a pretty good person. You are not accepted by God because he helps you be better and better. You're not even accepted by God because you are the one who put your trust in him. You are only accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Not on the basis at all of what you've done. Not even on the basis of your believing It's when you rely, by faith, when you rely on Christ alone, that's when you experience God's acceptance. It's not your faith that saves you. It's what Christ has done. And relying on Christ alone, that is means by which God connects you to this righteousness. So what's going to count in the end? Not what you've done. Only what Christ has done for you. You couldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Look, we we see this in our kids, right? Even early on, as we, we see it in ourselves too, we would like to dictate what happens to us. We, we like to be in charge. We like to be the ones that say what we get to do and, and don't get to do. That's, that's the way we are. So think about how we apply that to good works. If we're doing good works... In that sinful state, we're doing it because of what we can get out of it. We're doing it because we want to do it, because it's the best thing we think is for us. We're not doing it in reliance on the Spirit at that point. We're doing it because it's our achievement. But when you come to see this amazing grace of God, that when you become convinced that you actually deserve God's punishment, you deserve God's wrath, but that he sent his son to rescue you from what you deserve and that he did for you what you couldn't wouldn't do, that you experienced something you don't deserve in being declared righteous by Jesus and what he's done. That's when you love God because of what he did for you. 
You're going to want to listen to a God who does that for you because he loved you first. You're going to want to worship him. You're going to want to live your life for him in response to what he's done for you. You're not going to be trying to be good enough for heaven. You're going to want heaven because God's there. Because he's a loving God, a gracious God, an amazingly gracious God. And you're going to know and believe and rely completely on his love for you in Christ. Just like Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you if you believe. Join me in prayer. Father, we are thankful for our father Abraham. But we're thankful for him, not because he was this exemplar of righteous living. Because he's an example to us of how we're accepted. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but completely in accordance with your grace and mercy. Though we are ungodly, against all hope, you, you consider us righteous in Jesus. Pray that that really would stimulate our love for you. That would, it would cause it to expand in ways that we ought to. If we could see this the way that we ought to, if we could see it as significant as it really is, how amazing of an impact would it have on us? So we ask for your, your gracious mercy to open our eyes to the significance of being declared righteous not on the basis of anything we've done, but completely because of what you've done for us in your son. Paying the punishment we deserve. Living the life we should have lived. Giving our sins in him and reconciling us to yourself. May that stimulate us toward love and good deeds not as a means to be accepted, but as a way to thank you for this undeserved acceptance. I pray that anyone here who is relying on themselves, who still thinks that there's something that they can contribute here, there's something that can set them apart from others, there's something that can can show you that they're worthy of you, that they would recognize that that's not true. Your spirit would convict them of the reality of their life your spirit would cause them to see and behold this amazing grace. That grace, that that good news would transform us. And it would transform them even this morning so that they embrace you as the God who saves them, not because of what they have done, but because of Christ. Amen.